it's okay to have a healthy sense of fear and concern when we are intubating. I have experienced hundreds of peri-intubation cardiac arrest, meaning as we are intubating or right after we get the tube in successfully, the patient goes into cardiac arrest. Hey there, I've got some exciting news to share and I can't wait to tell you about it. So if you're multitasking, come back to me because this is something you won't want to miss. You may already be familiar with my one hour rapid response and rescue course, a quick dive into approaching critical patients. I'm thrilled to receive such positive feedback from nurses who found it valuable, but I'm not stopping there. I've been hard at work developing a more comprehensive, in-depth course. However, the more I work on it, the more I realize that I wanna offer more than just another course to purchase. Reflecting on my years as an educator, what I truly cherish is the opportunity to interact with nurses in real time, breaking down complex concepts, mentoring, inspiring, coaching, and supporting nurses as they navigate the challenges of our profession. Teaching and empowering nurses is close to my heart. Over my 20 years in the field, I've amassed a wealth of clinical knowledge that I'm committed to sharing with nurses. But there's more to being a great nurse than just understanding pathophysiology. Through trial and error myself, I've gained other valuable skills related to leadership, advocacy, resilience, which I believe can be beneficial to all nurses. So here's the plan for 2024. I want to create a community of dedicated nurses who invest in themselves so that they can deliver exceptional patient care. This won't be just me recording myself for a podcast. I want to teach live, address your questions, and provide a platform for nurses to support one another. I'm calling it Rapid Response Academy, the heart and science of caring for the sick. Members will enjoy weekly live lessons, a community forum for questions, and personal interaction with me to better understand your needs and support you on your journey. This is uncharted territory and I'm excited to explore it together. I'll be soft launching on December 1st to get to know the initial members. So those who sign up before December will receive a 25% discount and play a pivotal role in shaping the community from the ground up. The signup list opens on Friday, November 24th. If you're excited about more in-depth teaching, access to a supportive community of like-minded nurses, and the chance to be a part of our founding group, I'd love to have you on board. If you want to learn more about what I'm building, I put a link in the show notes for you. Now, let's get back to today's episode. In this episode, we'll be talking about what are some of the factors that lead to this peri-intubation, hypotension, and subsequent cardiac arrest as well as what we can do as nurses to mitigate these risk factors. Hey there, I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini, a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. This podcast is for nurses who want the knowledge, skills, and confidence to respond to any emergency. With almost 20 years of experience in the ER and critical care nursing and a master's degree in nursing education, I have a lot of stories to share and I love to nerd out and break down the pathophysiology, pharmacology, and nurses' role in emergencies. Stories bring learning to life. It is way easier to learn from and remember the stories that my colleagues and mentors have told me than anything I've read in a textbook. And that is why I made this podcast. Every episode is packed full of exactly what you need to know to handle whatever crisis that could arise on your shift. 
It's one thing to get the right answer on the test, but knowing how to detect when your patient is declining and what to do when your patient is crashing is what will make or break your day and might just save your patient's life. Welcome back to part two of this intubation series. Last week, we talked about a patient who had, quote, stable vitals with an SpO2 of 91%, but she was not protecting her airway. So we opted to go ahead and intubate before things got worse. And they got worse really fast. What I want to talk about this week stems off of last week's episode. So it's important that you know the reasons why we would need to intubate in the first place. Sometimes they are obvious and sometimes not so much. So if you haven't heard episode 72, pause right here and go back and check it out first. But then come back because in this episode, I'll be breaking down how to prepare for intubation for your patient and what you can do to optimize your patient before, during, and after the intubation. This is important stuff, so let's dive in. Before I get into the nitty gritty, first let me say that intubation is dangerous. Yes, it is a life-saving intervention and is sometimes a patient's only chance at survival. But the act of intubation can also kill your patient. So while it may be exciting and seem like we're about to save a life every time we drop an ET tube, I want you to approach every intubation ready for the worst case scenario, which would be cardiac arrest. When I started as a nurse, I viewed intubation as somewhat of a fix-all, that if we could just get the tube in, we could save just about anybody. But y'all, the act of getting the tube through the vocal cords and into the airway does not always fix a problem. And in fact, sometimes it makes more problems. So for example, anaphylactic shock. Yes, you might get the tube in and maintain a patent airway when the airway is closing off, but the tube does not fix the hemodynamic collapse that's also happening in anaphylactic shock. There's more work to be done. COVID pneumonia. The tube in the airway leading to COVID lungs doesn't fix anything. Their lungs are still inflamed and full of fluid. The ET tube does not fix that. It just gives us a vehicle with which to better oxygenate and ventilate those sick lungs. But there's more happening physiologically that needs to be addressed. Asthma exacerbation. A tube in the trachea definitely doesn't fix the inflammation in the bronchi. The problem is that their airways are too tight to allow oxygen in and CO2 out. A tube in the trachea won't instantly fix that either. Pulmonary embolism. Intubating absolutely positively won't help that. The problem with pulmonary embolism is not that the air cannot get in, is that the lungs are not getting the blood flow that they need and that forward flow of blood is impeded by a blood clot. Shoving a tube in the trachea often makes things worse and not better for PE patients. And I could go on and on. Summary here, it's okay to have a healthy sense of fear and concern when we are intubating. I have experienced hundreds of peri-intubation cardiac arrest, meaning as we are intubating or right after we get the tube in successfully, the patient goes into cardiac arrest. In this episode, we'll be talking about what are some of the factors that lead to this peri-intubation, hypotension, and subsequent cardiac arrest, as well as what we can do as nurses to mitigate these risk factors. So first things first, let me define intubation. Intubation is the act of placing an endotracheal tube into the trachea of a patient with the intent of keeping the airway open and taking over ventilations, either manually or with the ventilator. 
Once the decision has been made to intubate, there are several things the nurse must do to prepare for the procedure. This includes assembling the right people, gathering equipment, preparing medications, and ensuring that the patient is aware of what is about to happen. So let's start with the right people. This is gonna depend on your facility. At mine, I wanna have a provider who is trained in intubation, a respiratory therapist, and another nurse besides myself, at minimum. I have worked with fewer resources, but for me, ideally, it's two people at the head of the bed managing the airway and two people managing the patient. If you're at a teaching hospital, it can be a lot more people. And if you're at a smaller, more rural hospital, maybe less people, maybe you work pre-hospital, even less people. So it all depends on what your facility is like, but that's just my, my preference for my hospital. If possible, I also like to have the chaplain there too, because they're so great with being with the family during such a scary intervention. But really anyone who is compassionate can be that support person with the family. All right, so you got the right people in the room. Let's talk about the right equipment. You will need equipment to optimize your patient before the procedure and also the actual supplies for the intubation itself. To prepare for the procedure, if at all possible, you're gonna to want to pre-oxygenate your patient. You can achieve pre-oxygenation by multiple means from using a high-flow nasal cannula to a non-rebreather to BiPAP. We'll talk about the medications we give prior to intubation in a minute, but first I want you to think about what is going to happen. We'll be giving a drug which takes away the patient's ability to breathe independently. And so we are relying on the provider to be able to get that tube in since the patient cannot breathe for themselves. In a healthy person on room air, you have about 60 seconds of apnea before the SpO2 drops to 90%. And it will continue to drop after that rather quickly. On a sick person with sick lungs and other comorbidities, you have far less time than that. That means that from the time you push the drug in until the provider successfully gets the tube in, you have less than 60 seconds, but you can lengthen that safe apnea time by pre-oxygenating your patient prior to giving them the sedation and the paralytic. So the goal of pre-oxygenation is denitrogenation. Basically, when the patients exhale, you want to replace their entire residual capacity with oxygen. Residual capacity is the amount of air mass in the lungs or in the airways after the patient breathes out, so what's left in there. So we can push out all the nitrogen, replace it with oxygen, and you wanna shoot for an SpO2 as close to 100% as possible. So I've seen this done several ways. You can just put a nasal cannula on um, with 15 liters per minute. Again, we don't usually do that, but we're about to intubate, so it's not gonna be a very long time period where they have this very drying oxygen in their nose. You can do that underneath a non breather even better, or you can do it, the nasal cannula, underneath the bag valve mask while you're giving those assisted ventilations. You can also put that nasal cannula with the high flow underneath BiPAP. So it just kind of depends on if your patient needs that added pressure and also if the BiPAP is available to you in the moment. <laughs> so there's lots of different situations that would guide you one way or the other. The takeaway I want you to know as nurses is make sure you have some sort of pre-oxygenation because pre-oxygenation buys you more time to get the airway in safely. You're also going to need all of the equipment to actually get the tube in, which is going to include the ET tube itself. They come in all sizes. The average adult size is like seven and a half or eight. 
that would be eight millimeters in diameter, tube diameter. But pediatrics or small patients might need smaller tubes. You'll need a syringe attached to the end of the ET tube, already filled with air, ready to inflate the balloon or the cuff at the end of the ET tube. You will need lubrication for the tube. I usually just squirt a little bit on the tip of the tube and then shove the tube back in the original packaging that it came in. You'll also need a stylet, which goes inside the tube to make it rigid so it's easier for the provider to place the tube. You'll need stuff to visualize the airway. That's going to start with suction. So make sure you have suction set up and ready, have the canister attached, have suction turned on, attached to the ink hour, test it to make sure it's actually sucking. Your facility might use direct visualization, which is like the, the handle that has the fiber optic light on the tip of it and the blade that goes into the patient's mouth to kind of pull the tongue out of the way and see the vocal cords. When it comes to those direct visualization devices, there's two styles or types. One's called a Mac, one's called a Miller. The Mac is a blade that's kind of curved. I think of Mac as has a C, and the C is like a curve. There's also the Miller blades, which are straight blades. Think about the L in Miller is a straight line. So Miller blades are straight and they're also size, like size two, three, four. So the provider would ask, I want a Mac 4. And so that's the size of blade that you would attach to the handle, which has the light on it. That's how they're going to go in and see the vocal cords. But many hospitals now have video laryngoscopy, which is the same concept, but the blades that you go in and look around with have a video camera on the end of them. So the provider would not have to put their head all up in the patient's face and look down their throat. They simply look at a screen with the video image on it to visualize the path into the trachea. There is so much literature that supports video laryngoscopy as a superior method to direct visualization or direct laryngoscopy with regards to first pass success and also less harm to patients. So if you hear providers kind of bashing each other for needing to use the video, smash that culture. Videos are safer period. This is not about the provider's ego. It's about what's best for the patient. And yes, it's still important to have the skill of placing ET tube with direct visualization. But if you have a better option, use the video scope. The next thing you'll need is a way to confirm placement of the ET tube once it's in. You can confirm placement in several ways. The first is auscultation. So you'll need to step the scope for this. Uh, once the tube is in, you will listen over the epigastrum first. If you hear bubbling, that's bad. Two might be in the wrong place. <laughs> no bubbling, then go ahead and move on to listening over the left and right lung fields. You want to listen to see if it sounds equal on both sides. It's very common for the ET tube to be placed a little too deep, and then it enters the right main stem, which results in the right lung getting ventilated better than the left lung. You can often hear the difference in sound. The solution is just to pull back the ET tube a little bit, so the tube is in the center, ventilating both the left and right lung fields equally. So you'll use your stethoscope, you'll listen. The other thing you'll need besides a stethoscope is something to detect CO2. So you have two options here. The first one is the color metric CO2 detector. This is a qualitative device, so it's just gonna give you a yes or no. If you haven't seen them before, they come out of the package like a little plastic doohickey that has purple litmus paper on it, paper that can detect the pH. So the paper comes out purple, you attach it to the end of the ET tube once it's placed. If the ET tube is actually in the trachea, 
when CO2 crosses over that litmus paper, it will turn the paper from purple to yellow because CO2 is an acid. That is your confirmation that we are in the right hole. If you accidentally intubated the esophagus, for example, well, there's no acid technically coming across like the air from the gut is not going to come across and change the color of the paper. So if you intubate, you place the CO2 detector, the paper stays purple, take that tube out and start again, you're in the wrong spot. Um, the way I remember this is if it's yellow, you're golden. Golden, yellow, you're in the right spot is what I'm getting at there. All right, so that is a color metric CO2 detector. It's a one-time use. It just tells you are you in or not. I have seen some false positives with this one. So the better device, the gold standard, is going to be end-tidal CO2 monitoring. So that's actually a quantitative device. It's going to give you both a number, like a value, and also a waveform to see if you are in the lungs. So um, end-tidal CO2 monitoring, again, every facility looks different, but usually you have a plastic device that has a little tube, almost like a nasal cannula tubing that attaches to your monitor. It's going to give you the number, like what is the end-tidal CO2, and also give you a waveform as the patient is inhaling and exhaling. This is the most valuable, the best confirmation of tube placement. You also want other monitoring equipment before, during, and after the procedure, monitoring the heart rate, the blood pressure, the SpO2. Uh, there's a lot to keep track of when it comes to intubating someone. Things change really fast, so having that monitor on them already is very important. And the final thing on the supplies list is some sort of securing device for the ET tube and also the ventilator itself. Typically, your respiratory therapist will take care of this, but I think it's valuable to kind of know what they are doing so you can help out if they're shorthanded. All right, so let's review the equipment. First, you need pre-oxygenation supplies. So a flow meter, a nasal cannula, a non-rebreather mask, BiPAP machine, BVM, all those things to almost like hyper-oxygenate or pre-oxygenate your patient to buy you some more time before the tube is actually placed. Next, you'll need the supplies to actually get the ET tube in. So the correct size tube, the stylet to make it stiff, a syringe to inflate the bulb, lubricant, the handle, the blade, either video or direct laryngoscopy supplies, whatever your facility uses, make sure you have all that ready at the bedside. Next, you'll need something to confirm placement. So your stethoscope, the color metric CO2 detector, or end tidal CO2 monitoring and tubing. And finally, you'll need a securing device and the ventilator itself. But there is one other very important part with regards to preparing for the procedure, and that is the medications. I wanted to separate this one out to give it the attention it deserves because this is where things can go south for the patient. So let's talk about medications commonly referred to as RSI drugs, which is short for rapid sequence intubation. The idea behind RSI or rapid sequence intubation is you want a fast way to get the tube in. So with RSI, you give an induction agent for unconsciousness, so like atomidate, ketamine, propofol, etc., followed by a paralytic for paralysis. So succinylcholine, rocuronium, vacuronium, et cetera. You push them back to back rapidly to be able to sedate and paralyze a patient to proceed with intubation. Always give your sedation first because we would never want to paralyze someone who is still awake. So sedate, 
then paralyze. Lots of options here. Atominate is the one that I'm most frequently using. The dose is 0.3 milligrams per kilogram. It works in about 50 to 30 seconds, so real fast onset, and it wears off in about 10 minutes. The other is propofol, which the dose is 1.5 to 3 milligrams per kilogram. It works in about 15 to 45 seconds, and it wears off in about five minutes. The other one is ketamine. This dose really depends on what you're trying to achieve. So anywhere from one to two milligrams per kilogram, it works in a minute, and it lasts for about 10 to 20 minutes. So that's your sedation. There's more options, but these are kind of the most common. For the paralytic, your options are succinylcholine, which the dose is 1.5 milligrams per kilogram. It works in about 45 seconds, but it only lasts for five to 10 minutes. Next is rocuronium, which the dose is one milligram per kilogram. It works in about 60 seconds, but it lasts for 45 minutes. And then finally is vecuronium, which the dose is 0.15 milligrams per kilogram. Works in about two minutes, and it lasts for 45 minutes to an hour. But remember what I said, once you paralyze a patient, they cannot and will not breathe on their own. They are completely dependent on us breathing for them. If you push this drug and walk away, you absolutely will kill your patient. So you only ever give this medication if the provider is ready to put that tube in right after. If you are able to pre-oxygenate the patient, that buys the provider a little more time to work with, but you still have to pay close attention to the oxygen saturation once these drugs are pushed and ensure that the patient's oxygen saturation doesn't drop too low while the provider is trying to get the tube in. So pre-oxygenate. Once the provider is completely ready with the tube in hand and gives the go-ahead, then you would push the sedation agent followed by the paralytic if indicated. However, this right here is where things go really south. Two things are about to happen. If you don't hear anything else I say in this podcast, this next little section is the most important thing I want you to remember. So once you give those medications and we're about to intubate, here's what's going to happen. The first, positive pressure ventilation is bad for blood pressure. The way we naturally breathe is actually a negative pressure ventilation system. So like the diaphragm kind of pulls down and acts to suck the air into the lungs, which also helps with preload. But when we strip the patient of their natural ability to breathe normally, and we switch them into positive pressure ventilation, which is what we're doing when we use the BVM or the ventilator, we are increasing intrathoracic pressure which can decrease venous return to the heart and decrease cardiac output. Additionally, the more PEEP that we use, PEEP is positive end expiratory pressure. That means it's going to affect hemodynamics all the more. So when you think about PEEP, know that it's valuable for the lungs, but it's likely going to lower your patient's blood pressure. So problem number one, we're about to change the hemodynamics because we are switching the patient from their own intrinsic way of breathing, a negative pressure ventilation system, and switch them into a positive pressure ventilation system, which is going to drop the blood pressure. That's problem number one. The second thing that happens is when we're giving sedating medications, which inherently lower blood pressure, 
even medications like ketamine and etomidate, which have a fairly low hemodynamic effect on the patient's blood pressure, I've seen them both drop patient's blood pressure. So we're both switching to a positive pressure ventilation system and we are giving sedation, both of which can cause your patient's blood pressure to tank. So the takeaway for you is not to avoid PEEP or avoid sedation. The takeaway is to be prepared for the drop in blood pressure. So in addition to your sedation, your analgesia, and your paralytic, it's also important to have something ready for blood pressure. I like to prepare a liter of fluids on a pressure bag, primed and ready to go in case there's a transient drop in blood pressure. Or I'll have push-toes pressers drawn up and ready to go, so either epinephrine or phenylephrine. I actually did a whole video about this on Instagram, so if you want to go check it out, it's how to mix up push-toes pressers. It's different than one that comes straight out of the crash cart. The concentration is very different, so make sure you understand their indication, how to mix it up, what dose you're giving. Make sure the doctor's on board with it, because not every facility uses push-toes pressers. Sometimes I'll also just have a vasopressor drip primed and already programmed on the pump, so I just have to hit start in case the blood pressure drops post-induction. So even in patients with stable blood pressures at the start of the procedure, when you pair the positive pressure ventilation switcheroo and the sedation medication, even those stable patients can experience some pretty scary drops in blood pressure when being intubated. So be ready with a solution to low blood pressure either volume or vasoconstrictors. One more little caveat I wanted to touch on is what has been turned by one of my heroes in emergency medicine, Dr. Scott Weingart. He calls it delayed sequence intubation, or DSI. We just talked a lot about how to get the tube in rapidly, or rapid sequence intubation, but sometimes rapid is not safe. Think about the patient who's agitated or combative, either from hypoxia or drugs, or they're just the belligerent type at baseline, these patients do not tolerate the pre-oxygenation interventions very well. I'm sure you've all seen a hypoxic patient who won't keep the oxygen on. You know they need it, but they're screaming, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, and ripping off the face mask and climbing out of the bed or swinging their arms or hallucinating that they're being held against their will or something's chasing them. All these behaviors are not very compatible with pre-oxygenation interventions. So, DSI, or delayed sequence intubation, is ideal for this patient population. To do DSI, you administer a sedative like ketamine, just an associative dose, so one milligram per kilogram. You can keep giving little doses of 0.5 milligrams per kilogram until you achieve the desired effect. So the goal is to calm them down, then pre-oxygenate, and then take the airway. So it takes a little longer because ketamine is administered slowly and it takes a bit to kick in, but it allows you to actually pre-oxygenate before you intubate. Okay, so I've said a lot. Let me back up and start from the beginning so you can put yourself in my shoes. So I'm gonna go back to the story from the patient in episode 72. All right, so I see this patient. They don't look good. They're not protecting their airway. We decide to intubate. The ICU doctor's on their way. So what did I do? I got suction all set up. I called the respiratory therapist to prep all the intubation supplies. I confirmed that I had two patent IVs and I drew up the sedation and the paralytic myself. I also prepared a liter of normal saline on a pressure bag and I mixed up a norepinephrine drip so it's ready to go. Alternatively, 
I could have prepped a push dose presser. Either is acceptable. The respiratory therapist started pre-oxygenating the patient with the nasal cannula and the non-rebreather mask on top of it. The provider arrived and confirmed that everything was prepared. She says, all right, I've got Sarah on meds. I've got James documenting. I've got Daniela as the respiratory therapist to assist with intubation. We have suction set up. We've confirmed this patient is a full code. So just making sure everything's good to go. Once she confirmed that she was ready for the drugs and I confirmed that she was ready with the tube, then I pushed the automate, followed by the vecuronium, and I verbalized what I was pushing. I said out loud, I'm giving 20 milligrams of automate, followed by 10 milligrams of vecuronium. All right, they're both in. Quick side note, not all drugs that we give for induction are within the nurse's scope of practice. So for example, ketamine, propofol, I can draw them up, but I cannot push them in the patient. At least in my state, with my state board of nursing, it has to be a nurse practitioner, a PA, or physician who actually pushes the medication in. So I have nurses that listen from all over the globe, so I can't speak to everywhere. So I guess my message here is make sure that whatever medication you're giving, both sedation and paralytic, are within your nursing scope of practice because sometimes a provider has to be the one to push the medication in. All right, so the drugs go in. The doctor starts to visualize the airway and proceeded to insert the ET tube. I recycled the blood pressure and sure enough, it had dropped dramatically, as I suspected and as I was prepared for. So I have a blood pressure of 80 over 40. I verbalized, I got a blood pressure of 80 over 40. Can I go ahead and start some IV fluids? So I started the IV fluids and the next blood pressure was a little bit better. So I asked the provider, what sedation do you want for the patient? She ordered propofol. They don't stock propofol in the med surge floors in my hospital. So I called the charge nurse in the ICU and asked her to go ahead and prep it for whenever I arrived. So I got to the ICU about seven minutes post-intubation. Even though the patient looked sedated, I prioritized starting the sedation because, like I mentioned earlier, vecuronium, the paralytic, lasts 45 to 60 minutes, while automate wears off in 10 it is inhumane to allow a patient to be paralyzed but not sedated. Paralyzed patients can still feel pain and fear even though they cannot move their bodies to express that. I've received patients from other hospitals who were RSI'd. The patient had gotten intubated, but by the time they arrived to us, they were still paralyzed, but I knew they were no longer sedated. I have seen patients tear up and cry even though they can't move or speak or gesture or respond in any way. I can tell from their vital signs that they are awake. And that's just not right, guys. I've heard nurses say, oh, you can't sedate and their blood pressure is too low. Yes, you can. You can give vasopressors to support the blood pressure so you can then give the patient the sedation that they need. It's the human thing to do. So let me just say it again. No paralysis without sedation. One more time. If you're going to give a paralytic you must prioritize sedation, even if it means starting a vasopressor to support the blood pressure. So your priorities as you go through the intubation process, and these could all be happening simultaneously if you have enough bodies. It's gonna be assemble your team, gather supplies, prepare the medications, both the RSI drugs and the medications to support blood pressure, pre-oxygenate, ensure you have working IVs, set up suction, Prepare the monitor and all the emergency equipment. Administer medications once the provider is ready to intubate. Monitor vital signs and respond to hemodynamic changes. 
confirm placement of the ET tube with auscultation, and the gold standard would be end-tidal CO2 monitoring. Ensure the patient is adequately sedated if they were paralyzed. You can always start weeding off the sedation once the paralytic wears off. And then continue to monitor and ensure the patient is improving from the intubation. When it comes to intubation, the nurse plays an important role. Yes, the provider is the one to actually insert the ET tube into the trachea, and they must have skills to perform that technically challenging task. But the whole procedure of intubating a patient is much more complicated and challenging than just finessing a tube through the vocal cords. Yes, there are anatomically challenging airways due to trauma or secretions or edema, but most of the intubations that I encounter are not a challenge anatomically. They're a challenge because of their pathology, because their lungs are so sick and they're very hypoxic, because they're in shock and they're hemodynamically unstable, because they have a metabolic derangement. Any of those factors make for a different kind of challenge, and it requires the whole team, not just the one intubating, to be prepared for the worst. I hope that you take away from this episode some concepts that will help you critically think through your next intubation so you can implement interventions to prevent complications and promote the best outcome for your crashing patient. Before you go, I just wanted to let you know that if you like this episode, you would probably like my course too. My one-hour rapid response and rescue course is an introduction to how I approach emergencies. If you would like to learn to think, assess, and respond quickly when your patient is crashing, then you can check out my website, rapidresponseandrescue.com. And if you message me the word podcast on Instagram, I will send you a coupon code for $10 off the cost of the course. Oh, and did I mention that the course is approved by the AACN and worth one continuing education contact hour? So if you want to level up your emergency response skills and get one CE in the process, then this course is what you want. I put the link in the show notes for you. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport, so trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. Evidence-based practice is ever-changing and your patient care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponseandrescue.com or on social media platforms as the Rapid Response RN. 